This morning we are taking our journey through the Catechism onwards. I'm going to try and summarize two big things, and I'm going to try in explaining both of them to give you a vision of something that I'm pretty sure for almost all of you is not how you usually think of these two things, namely sin and freedom. When you come back and do moral theology properly in the, in the theology course in a couple of years' time, you'll look at these more deeply. Um, so I'm, in a sense, only giving you a taste, but I want to begin to give you an idea that there is in our Catholic vision actually something different from what you're used to thinking about sin and freedom. So let's first, what are we going to say about sin? We're going to describe sin, this isn't from the Catechism, but an author we're going to look at. We're going to describe sin as choosing good evilly. Namely, you're somehow pursuing what appears good, appears attractive, but in an evil manner. You wouldn't be reaching for it to begin with if it didn't have something about it that appeared attractive. So we're going to introduce the concept of what's called an apparent good, not a real good. And then we're also going to note that you can pursue real goods but out of measure or in an inordinate manner somehow. So one donut is a good. Ten donuts is a real good out of measure. Eating a donut during mass is a real good out of context, inordinate because of its place. But you might stuff your face with that donut during Mass because it does still look good. Yeah, there's a reason you'd be doing it. If it didn't look good to begin with, if it didn't have the appearance of goodness in some sense, why would you reach for it? So a big part of living the moral life is actually having that pause interiorly to be, is this a real good or not? Is it masquerading as a good somehow? So we're going to note from St. Thomas here, again, not from the Catechism, but I'm going to try and articulate how this is nonetheless the Catechism's vision, an absence of consideration. That in some sense, if I had thought about it properly, I wouldn't have stuffed my face with a donut during Mass. If I'd thought about it properly, I wouldn't have had the ten donuts for breakfast that then made me feel sick later. They felt great going down, but I just should have known. There was an absence of consideration. Now, why do you do that? Well. Picking up where we were last session, all nature 
acts for an end, that you, the human person, you act for the end of happiness. That there is within you desire. What does desire seek, move you towards? The good in general, goods in particular, individual things. We might describe that as simply as desire moves you to the desirable, the attractive. You wouldn't reach for it unless there was something about it that was desirable, that was attractive. You know, in Alice in Wonderland, those little things she found that said, eat me. There's something about it that says, eat me. Later, when you do proper moral theology, you'll spend a lot more on the question of freedom. But I'm going to try and give you a taste of the notion that there are different ways of thinking about what freedom means. The modern notion of freedom that you have all grown up taking for granted is not the Catholic notion of freedom. It's if we think about it philosophically in terms of the history of ideas, it's the nominalist view of freedom. So in that approach, freedom and action, freedom sees what nature is, what reality is, and it just tries to get around it. that reality is a problem. Reality isn't a thing that fulfills you. Freedom, I want to be a woman. Who are you to tell me not to be a woman? Who are you to tell me I'm not a woman? My nature? No, I, I'm going to choose something I want to do and nature is just an irrelevance to me. It's a thing I try and get around. Nature isn't, if anything, it's just an obstacle. Freedom is what comes first in the nominalist vision. St. Thomas is very different. What comes first is reality, is nature. Nature enables you in freedom to act. But here, freedom is an aspect of nature. Freedom isn't the thing at the root of everything. Freedom isn't the thing that ultimately defines you. Can you repeat that nature is primary? <sighs> um, freedom is an aspect of nature rather than freedom being the first thing. So in particular, your human nature, 
your human nature has the capacity to act freely, but that freedom is an aspect of your nature. Your nature is what's primary. And freedom exists within you, God's put it there, in order to be the pathway to your fulfillment, in order to be the pathway to get you to your end. Whereas the nominalist vision, freedom is just what comes first. And that goes with the vision of God, where God being all-powerful is first. A bit like Allah, yeah? That God is almighty, rather than God being rational, being wise, being self-consistent. God being love, and God actually somehow being incapable of not being loving. Whereas if you start with the notion of freedom, if God doesn't want to love today, he doesn't have to. He's free. Whereas not our whole vision, even of God, he is consistent in himself, he is true to himself, he is love, and his freedom is an aspect of how he acts, not what comes first. Now in God, it's slightly unreal to try and separate those things because God is, we, the philosophers say, simple. There aren't bits of him. All of his perfections are one. But the nominalist vision, the Islamic vision, puts power and freedom and the almighty is the primary thing. Yeah. Was human freedom seen as, as bad? No, not in this sense. Um, kind of in either sense, freedom isn't, isn't bad. Um, but in the Thomistic vision, freedom has a goal, freedom has a purpose. Freedom is how you get to the end. But that the end is rooted in your nature, and freedom is what gets you there. So you're yearning for happiness. You discover ultimately that your happiness is a particular type of happiness we call beatitude, and that actually it's God who is perfect beatitude. It's in God that this yearning for happiness that you're born with, that all your life you've had this desire to be happy, where do you find that? In God. And as we're going to note, sin is when that striving for happiness, that striving for the end, goes awry. You're somehow choosing the good, choosing what appears good, but in a wrong manner. Choosing good evilly. So that's in a nutshell what we're going to try and map out in our lecture today. Yeah. You said freedom and the law is is the as Pinkers was in that context describing it two poles in opposition with each other whereas in the Thomistic vision the law in a sense is just an aspect of your nature the law is what is indicating to 
your nature how to get to the end. The law isn't just some random thing slapped on top of nature. Rather, nature is structured according to the law. Or what is law? It is an articulation of the structure of nature. It's not random. I know it's a little frustrating when some of these things get thrown out and you can see these are big concepts. Um, you will return to them. That's why you do theology later. This is an introductory catechism level course. Okay, page one of the handout. So the total title of this lecture is called Freedom and Sin as a Perversion of the Quest for Happiness. This front page, I'm asking the question, the mystery of iniquity. Have you all heard this phrase, the mystery of iniquity? Why do we sin? We sin. Why do we sin? Um, three answers on that page. First, what we can call concubiscence, that somehow there's a disorder in my desires. I want things, I desire things, but in a disordered way. Josh, can you read that quote from Romans? I do not understand my own actions. Nothing good dwells within me that is in my flesh. I can will what is right, but I cannot do it. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I do. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I that do it, but sin which dwells within me. Now we could spend quite a while parsing apart that grammar, but basically <laughs> we, we all get what Paul's talking about there. Yeah, We all have this sense. Um, I got it this morning and I was going to work out, I was going to have something healthy for breakfast and instead I slept in another hour and I had a donut. Yeah, we, we, we do this. We know the good we should do and we do something else. I spend all my holy hour telling myself the next time I see that guy I'm going to smile and be radiantly pleasant. And then he walks in and I give him you know, um, I know the good, I want to do the good, but I do something. Why? Within me, there is a disorder. The put things within me, my desires, are pulling me the wrong way. The desires themselves are not evil, but there is within them a disorder. So concubiscence, literally meaning with desire, this is the term used to describe the disorder within our passions. Um, Adam, can you read that quote? So this is from the Catechism now. This is the term used to describe the disorder within our passions. It means the movement of the sensitive appetite contrary to the operation of human reason. The Apostle St. Paul identifies it with the rebellion of the flesh against the spirit. I'm going to unpack that a little, little more. The catechism is referring to the sensitive appetite. This is actually quite a technical term, very Thomistic. We're going to come back to that when we talk about the passions in a couple of weeks. 
Basic consequence of this, though, is concupiscence means that every human has an inherent inclination to sin. I'm not required to sin, it's not automatic I'm going to sin, but I'm inclined to sin. A rather crude analogy made this way is it's like a man with one leg. He's not necessarily going to fall over, but there's an inclination to fall over. Yeah? This is what concupiscent means within you. Okay, so that's the first reason. Why do you sin? Because there's disorder within you. Second, and this is the thing we're going to spend a bit more time on today, sinful action is attractive. Now, why is sin attractive? I say because all sinful action masquerades as a good, but it is an apparent good, not a real good. This is maybe for you today the key new word to learn, an apparent good. For example, the man who steals thinks, this is going to give me what I need. This is going to make me happy. This, I want this good thing. This is good for me. His motive in stealing isn't, possessing this will be bad for me, even though he may be partially aware of it. He may know if I commit this act of theft, it's all going to end badly, but just right now, I somehow want it. It's attractive. And I say this pattern holds for all sin. I note in bold that thinking stealing that thing will be good for me does not imply stealing is morally good. Now, we're using the word good here in a very technical sense. The catechism uses it this way. Good in this sense doesn't mean morally good. It's not the sense, sometimes we use the word right and wrong about morality. Good in this sense is somehow what is attractive. What in its very nature is good. As I said, that donut is good. But eating it in chapel, eating ten of them, not good. You, you with me on this thing, there's a different use of the word good going on there. So just to be aware of that as we're talking today. Third, why do we sin? The devil tempts us. Um, that is real. Um, you'll find with parishioners in spiritual direction, um, certain people will come to you obsessed with the devil made me do it, the devil's tempting me. Uh, what does the Catechism say? What does St. Thomas say? The primary way the devil works in your life is indirectly. He has already by the first sin of our, our first parents, so disrupted your being that he doesn't need to be directly prompting you. That your inclination to sin, you undo yourself all too easily. And it can be a distraction to be blaming the devil. Okay, page two. Page two look familiar? Page two is just a complete copy of our last page of our last lecture about happiness and the final end of human action. How are we doing time-wise? Okay, I'm going to very briefly run through most of this page. 
What did I say? I said, all things act for a purpose. A plant acts purposefully but by instinct. Humans act consciously but nonetheless with a purpose. Skipping down. All human activity acts for the sake of a final end. There is something ultimate that I'm moving towards. St. Augustine unpacks, unpacks this in his Confessions. He says, all men desire joy. All men agree in desiring the last end, which is happiness, which in the Latin he's writing in, the word is beatitude. So people don't agree on what happiness is. People don't agree on where they think they'll find happiness, but they all want to be happy. And anything you're wanting, you're wanting as a means to get to happiness. Why do I want that car? In order to be happy. I think if I have that car, that Mercedes, then, then at last I'd be happy. I think if I have that bigger house, that better job, that all those things are not ends in themselves. I want them in order to get to happiness. And Aristotle notes, you never want happiness for the sake of something else. There isn't a thing beyond happiness. I noted no one seeks to be unhappy. I said even the, the moody teenager, even the sulking seminarian, you, you wallow in your misery yeah, because you get a kind of pleasure in wallowing in your misery. You are seeking happiness even while refusing to be happy. Um, you've just really reduced the vision of what happiness is. But it's still that drive. I'm somehow seeking something that's going to satisfy, something that's going to give me happiness. So the good, I say St. Thomas phrases it, whatever man desires, he desires it under the aspect of good. It somehow has the appearance of goodness. And ultimately, at the bottom of the page there, the comprehensive good, all these particular things we seek for, thinking these good things will make me happy. Ultimately, the only thing that really can make you happy is this good that includes all goods, the good that is God. Only God can satisfy you. There's something you are made for that is so great, you are so great, that the only thing that can satisfy you is God himself. You're, doing, you're going to do the Nicomachean Ethics in your ethics course now. Yeah, it's a beautiful book, a beautiful analysis of, of human action, human striving. We have this striving. We seek to be happy. We fail to find it in all kinds of things because the only thing that can satisfy us is God. And you'll notice in Aristotle the various points where he'll say he doesn't quite have the answer, but he's got it good enough. He didn't quite have the answer because he didn't know the Lord Jesus. And the fullness of revelation casts a light on everything in the Nicomachean ethics that brings it to, to the fulfillment that St. Thomas then, in the Summa, unpacks and clarifies things that Aristotle couldn't quite figure out. Okay, before moving on, that page, we're okay with? Yeah, 
Uh, I had a question about the non-conscious actions at the top of the page. Yeah. Maybe, action, maybe actions of a man, but not properly human actions. So lots of stuff you do you don't think about. So you're still doing them, but morally speaking, they're not relevant. Oh, okay. Yeah. Breathing, digesting. Yeah, all kinds of things like that. They are actions of a man, but they're not human actions, and therefore aren't worthy of complicating our analysis with. So they're not, they're human in the sense that like our body does it, but it's not, it doesn't have to do with like more morals. Yeah. That's, that's what we're talking about with like a rash, there, there's nothing to do with like rationality. Yeah. Okay. Um, now obviously, even the breathing thing, I can consciously then try to control my breathing and then it does become a human action, not just an action of a human. But generally speaking, in all of our ethical analysis, we're only interested in those things that the rationality is engaging. So is this the same principle behind why we're not guilty of what we do in our dreams? Uh, that's kind of a different thing to run with. And um, we will come on to that when we look at the question of consent and mortal sin. You are sometimes guilty in, for your dreams if the dreams, as we'll quote some of the saints, are a consequence of your evil actions during the day. So that dream you had of stabbing the rector to death was because you were having those thoughts of him during the day. So, so, so just to say, oh, it was only a dream, I'm not guilty. Um, so modern psychology says dreams flow out of what we do during the day. The saints, a couple thousand years ago, were, even before they had psychology, uh, able to see that what we do during the day affects our dreams. Okay, page three, moving on. So very briefly, what is evil? What is evil? Well, I'm quoting Augustine again here. Evil is a, a mere privation of good. Uh, evil is not a thing existing in itself. Evil is a corruption of a good. Now, this is relevant because when we sin, we choose an evil not as evil, but in as much as it is somehow still good. Either good in it is what is desirable, what attracts us. For example, I say, a man might murder another because he loves his wife. His wife is the good that he pursues. Michael, can you read that quote from St. Augustine? But would anyone murder a man without any other occasion than only for the delight he takes in murder? It is not credible. So St. Augustine is responding to a notion... So the... Um, the Manichees, who were one of the groups he was arguing with, they had a vision of reality where there was a, kind of a good God making good stuff and a bad God making bad stuff. And he's saying, no, it's all, there's one God, one creator. Even this evil you see is from the good God. It is just lacking. It, it has a privation in its being. So when I do wrong, it's somehow a lack not the fullness. It's not a thing existing in itself. 
Augustine's example there, do you find that convincing? Would anyone murder a man without any other occasion but only the delight he takes in murdering? I don't. You don't find it convincing. And not everyone does. Because he's saying the only reason you would murder is, in his example, for the sake of the wife. I think I'd probably clarify that there would be a way of murdering where there is a good you are pursuing. So that's victory in destroying another. The, the, and victory is a good. There would be some good you would be focused on in the destruction of another. Still not convinced? No. So he's saying that there's no other... Um, he's saying that it's not credible to say that man is only murdering for the sake of murdering? There's something, there's something within it that is authentically good that you are pursuing. Not simply murder for itself. Right. So even the crazed lunatic. Ah, uh, uh, now a, a madman is mad. So he's not actually engaging in reality. So it gets a bit more difficult to say what's going on there. If we're going to be consistent here, I think Augustine would say even the madman, somehow, there's something that appears desirable in that action, appears like a good. Jake? What about abortion? The woman wants the freedom of a life that isn't going to be affected. That is a good. Um, And I think that that would also be a good. Knowledge is a good to pursue. Now, it's a very perverse way of pursuing knowledge. But it would be a good being pursued. We will come back to this more in later courses. Okay, I'm going to unpack this a bit further now. So, sin and the good. Sin occurs when we choose good evilly, which is what I wrote at the top of the page in red there. Uh, and here, if you look at the footnotes, I'm summarizing um, an old classic um, Walter Farrell's companion to the Summa, um, still a, a series, a four-volume series worth you having. What does it mean? He says, sin occurs when either one of two ways, one, two there, Either we choose an apparent good instead of a real good. E.g., an apparent good. We view adultery as something desirable, as something good. How? He says, we choose this delight of an inordinate act as something good to be performed now, rather than as something to be performed at another time or as something to be performed by another person. And why would you do that? He says, evil passions or evil habits can cloud our intellect, leading to erroneous or ignorant or willfully erroneous judgments. 
And he notes that we're frequently blameworthy for such judgments. And this can be a matter of mortal sin. Whereas conversely, good passions, good habits can clarify our insight, clarify our thinking, make it easy for us to see the good authentically. Do you grasp what he's saying about adultery as an apparent good? There's something within it that is authentic, the delight of the act. But you're failing to see, failing to recognize that that delight belongs to somebody else. That delight belongs to another place and context. But when you have your focus narrow and small and you're just looking at the delight, it does look, it is attractive. It is an authentic good. But because you're not seeing the full picture, because there's an absence of consideration, you're able to make it appear good. It's therefore an apparent good. But it isn't a real good. If you saw it in its proper context, you would recognize that isn't an authentic good. And so often for ourselves, how do we stop ourselves doing something that pausing, interiorly stepping back and seeing the bigger picture, and it kind of no longer looks desirable? Even if I've got a bad habit still pushing me there, I pause and I see the bigger picture and it ceases to look as desirable as it looked a minute ago. Whereas when I'm all in a disordered sense, excited and focused in a narrow field of vision morally, it looks attractive because I'm not seeing the full picture. So an apparent good, that's kind of what's always happening. I'm not seeing the full picture. That's one of the two ways we sin. Second here, says we choose something good in itself, but not according to proper measure or proper rule. He says this is due to the choice which is not properly regulated. So here are a couple of examples. You pray when you should be studying. Yet how often has a seminarian in his room added papers out, ready to write that paper, and suddenly feels deeply moved to go and pray in the chapel? What does God really want you to be doing? He wants you to be getting on with the paper. So prayer, which is a good, actually has a proper time. It shouldn't be an excuse to avoid your other duties. More obviously, we play games when we should be working. So again, playing games, good thing. You need to rest the body and sleep. You need to rest the soul and recreation. But proper place, proper time. Um, he says, such a sin does not presuppose ignorance, but merely an absence of consideration of the things which ought to be considered. And as in the first category, this can be willful, can be a matter of mortal sin. I, this phrase, an absence of consideration, is very serious. Let's um, note... Yeah, Adam. So you're saying, you're supposed to be doing homework, and you go to pray, you could be mortally sinned. I didn't use the word mortal there. Could be. So the um, 
person starving to death at your front door that you step over in order to go and pray. Um, that, that's sounding serious, more serious. I'm kind of, with respect to praying instead of studying, whether that's mortal, venial, I'm not wanting to make a point, question of whether it's mortal. I'm just saying the structure. You're two goods, but you're avoiding the good you should be doing by doing a easier good, or what right now seems an easier. You get to the chapel, and then pretty quickly you're, you're bored, and actually this is hard work. The good of the, um, the chocolate muffin that's still downstairs in the refectory, that's then calling to me. And that's a good as well. Yeah. So one good pushes out another good, pushes out another good. They're all goods, but authentic behavior knows the proper time, the proper place, the proper context. And the failure to do that mental seeing the authentic good and then in your will choosing it, this is the structure of sin. Or the lack of doing that is the structure of sin. Yeah. So the proper measure is determined by reason. Um, but what if your reason is... Faulty. Okay. How would your reason become faulty? So St. Thomas says there, bad habits, bad passions. So um, we'll come back to this when we look at virtue and the passions. So, but I'm, very briefly, I have a bad habit of eating too much. And so I just always tend to, in my mind, measure out too much. And that bad habit clouds my ability to, to think and judge properly. Reason in St. Thomas is a technical term. It's what a rational being does. Uh, so we need to understand reason in that kind of broader sense. Um, he'll also use the word measure, which in many ways is a very useful image in that it conjures up the thought that there's a right measuring quantity. We've also got to be aware that while that image works for like food, it doesn't directly relate to all of human activity. But you do want to measure the amount of time you pray, measure the amount of time you study. He would also be saying measure, which would include the place, the time of day, measure in a kind of broader sense as well with the use of measure. So use of word reason, use of word measure, we need a, a broad understanding to use it as he's using it. So why am I reaching for that thing? It somehow either is a real good out of measure or it's not even a real good to begin with. That it somehow masquerades as a good. Is the only way to learn how to choose in a measure Way, habit, or is there something else that he recommends? The formation of habit is a big thing. We'll come on to that when we look at virtue briefly. Um, a parent's major duty to its child is 
forming the child in good habits. So teaching the child by repetition to do certain things habituates the child in certain behaviors. And when that's done correctly, the child just learns to recognize authentic goods because they've been habituated to them. When that goes wrong, a child can just be habituated to obey rather than habituated to see a healthy way to eat. Yeah, and obedience isn't bad, but if the child only learns to obey, they haven't grasped the deeper thing that the habit should have been steering them towards. And obviously that same dynamic in the seminary, you know, all too often a seminarian will learn to obey, learn to conform, um, and then you take the seminarian out of the seminary, make him a priest, and there's no longer any structure for him to obey because all those practices weren't internalized. He didn't learn to recognize the goods that were mapped out in those different rules. Okay, let's move on because we will come back to this, or some of this at least in different ways later in the course. Okay, the remaining pages here are about freedom. And I've got various appendices here that we will not get through. I've got three pages here on freedom. I'm going to go through these fairly quickly, but then interrupt me or we can summarize and come back to them after I've gone through them. And to repeat, I'm trying to articulate to you the notion that there is more than way, one way of understanding freedom, that the Catholic understanding of freedom is not our American understanding of freedom, where freedom is the end goal, freedom is the thing. So that Philip Neary movie you watched, we watched the other night, lovely on many levels, I got really angry in the midst of it because the, the words that were put onto his lips had freedom as the gift God came to give you. Whereas freedom is a part of something greater he came to give you, rather than love or God or joy the modern understanding sees freedom as the thing. Yeah. What about like for freedom, Christ says freedom? That's where we've got to read Paul in the context of the rest of that, but he does say that, yes. Um, but even there, freedom has a goal. Um, okay, let's move through the page here and see what's being, what I'm trying to articulate. So freedom and the good. I say, note where freedom is placed in the catechism, that the treatment of freedom is in the context of our vocation to beatitude. Freedom that has a goal. Going to underline anything on that page? Freedom has a goal. That's the thing. The goal is God, the infinite good. Freedom is not about casting off constraints. Rather, freedom is about achieving a purpose that non-free beings cannot achieve, namely possessing God. That we're built for love, built for God. You can only find that in freedom.
And then quote the catechism, only the good can be loved. This is what those previous pages were trying to articulate. When you're loving something, reaching for something, desiring something, only that which is good can be loved. Then quote Augustine who says, we only love that which is fair and beautiful and apt. Now in heaven, I say in heaven, the possession of God will leave us totally satisfied. That the will will then be incapable of turning to anything that would be less satisfying. Eric, could you read the quote from the Catechism next? As long as freedom has not bound itself definitely to its ultimate good, which is God, there is a possibility of choosing. This freedom characterizes properly human acts. So while you live in this world, you can choose between an apple and an orange. You can choose between t having a nap or doing your, your next bit of uh, schoolwork. Um, these are all goods that you can choose between because none of them is all satisfying. They all give you a bit of satisfaction. In heaven, if you get there, to grasp God is so utterly satisfying that once you have him, you'll be incapable of turning to anything else. That that yearning for completion, that yearning for the good, there'd be nothing to seek it in anything else. In contrast, I say, in this world, we never possess God, the infinite good, in completion. We only possess finite goods. And the will is free to choose between finite goods. For example, an apple or an orange. The appetite for food can be satisfied in either, and so the will can choose between either. Comments so far? Can we turn back a page, actually? I want to talk, think about the devil for a second. And John Paul, can you read footnote 17 for us? This is where the fall of Satan is described. Footnote 17. Satan fell by an absence of consideration in that his sin consisted in choosing to contemplate only his own wondrous being and refusing to gaze upon the infinite splendor of the vision of God. The sin of pride, refusing to be subject to a superior where subjection is due, seeking to be like God in being subject to no one, like anyone else, if Satan had even once beheld the beatific vision of God, he would have been so completely satisfied that he would have been confirmed in good, and sin would no longer have been an option. No one would turn from the infinite good to some finite good. True beatitude includes stability in beatitude, or else it would be neither everlasting life nor true beatitude. Such a statement is not a restriction of freedom but an indication of what true freedom is seeking, fulfillment in a good that will satisfy. So even the devil, what his sin, his falling, was the same structure. If he'd even once seen God, the beatific vision, he'd have been so satisfied, 
he wouldn't have wanted to look to anything else. Instead, he refused to look and chose to gaze upon his own beauty. And Lucifer, the angel of light, was wondrous to behold. And to be focused on himself was truly wonderful. But he refused to look at what would have satisfied even more. Sorry, did someone have a question? So, like, that would mean, like, immediately when he was created, like, he just was so captivated by himself. Like, he, didn't, he chose not to look at anything else. Yeah. We won't go into angelology in this course. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, so angels make, in some sense, a single act that defines them, forms them for all eternity. We exist with bodies making sequential actions and sequential change. They're not like that. Yesterday the reading was talking about we'll be called the judge angels. Yeah. explanation of that? Or should I come back to you after class? After class. And, yeah, I'm not a scripture scholar. But, um, but there's this thing that we are higher than the angels because of the incarnation, uh, which is a pretty awesome thought. Um, okay, let's turn back to page four again. Okay, so we're flipping back there, just have this notion of complete perfection, satisfaction, but in this world that isn't what we have. We have lots of bits of satisfaction, lots of bits of completion in things that are authentically good, or at the very least appearing to be good, and that's why I'm grabbing at all these things. But it's that same structure of being. I'm seeking completion. I'm seeking fulfillment. I'm seeking it in these things that appear good to me. Okay, bottom half of the page here. I say, all created things yearn for goods that perfect them. Plants yearn for the sun. Animals yearn for food and so forth. Man, however, yearns for goods in a free manner because his rational nature makes him free. I'm going to unpack this connection between being rational and being free. But before, man is made in the image and likeness of God, i.e. is a rational being, i.e. with reason and will, with a vocation to beatitude. So the Catechism is putting all those things together in the same section of the Catechism. But what is it about the human intellect that makes our will free? I'm going to un unpack on the next page St. Thomas's answer to that. But that it's the intellect that makes the will free. The plant isn't free to decide whether or not to yearn for the sun. It just does what it does. There's something in you that is capable of choosing. And it's not random that you have an intellect and that you have a will these things come together in the type of being you are. Bottom of page four there, love and knowledge. I say we cannot love God without knowing him. 
cannot love things without knowing them. So there's a connection here between love and knowledge and the intellect. Yeah. Do all created things in this world have a fallen nature, or is it just humans that have a fallen nature? So St. Paul talks about how all of creation, with eager longing, awaits the fulfillment. Um, so the fall has affected everything, but they don't have concupiscence. Right. Yeah, but they are affected. Somehow animal suffering wouldn't have existed in its current form before the fall. That's a whole different lecture. Yeah, yeah. Um, Okay, page five. Top of the page. Love results from knowledge. I know something and I'm therefore able to love it. So the catechism, appetites. So man has various appetites. He has a sensitive appetite, the catechism says, that inclines us to something felt or imagined to be good. Well, you've got to know that thing to feel it somehow the sensitive appetite. The rational appetite, the will, is that which inclines us to what the intellect grasps. So these two appetites the Catechism refers to. So the intellect's power to judge freely enables the will to choose freely. I've got an example here to try and play that out. See, the intellect can choose which aspect of truth to focus on. So, this car. This car is a Ferrari. This car cost about $250,000. The owner left the keys in the ignition. If I took this car, no one would know. All of those my intellect are all true. My intellect can focus on different bits of the truth. Focusing on something different in my intellect is going to trigger a slightly different passion within me um, will make it possible for my will to choose a different choice. I say, or my intellect can focus on the truth, this car belongs to someone else. I note the intellect is free to focus on the car's colour or not, but the intellect is not free to grasp that the car is white if it's actually black. Yeah, so the intellect can focus on different aspects of truth, but it is still limited by truth. So the intellect cannot help but be configured to truth, but is free to choose which aspect of truth to ponder. Thus I say the will's freedom flows from the freedom in the intellect. You with me so far? Let me unpack this a bit further. See, note there is a mutual interplay between the will and the intellect. That the will can direct the intellect to focus on a certain aspect of truth. And the intellect's grasp of goods directs the will in terms of what it's free to choose between. The intellect's power to judge freely enables the will to choose freely, repeating what I've already said. But the will always chooses something on the basis of it 
appearing good, appearing fulfilling, appearing desirable, appearing to some extent godlike, because we are built for God. Let's do the next page and maybe then come back. I can see you're all thinking, but even your thoughts haven't formulated what question you're trying to articulate, yeah? Um, page six. So I'm now going to try and articulate a little more about freedom. So I've got a little section that I've called the limits of freedom. I say, we are free because of the type of beings that we are. It's an aspect of the type of beings we are. That freedom is a secondary aspect of our nature, not primary. We cannot choose to change reality. We can only choose to change how we will engage with reality. We can only choose between the finite goods before us. Freedom is an aspect of nature. Freedom is limited by nature. So we give the example there. I am not free to jump over the library. My li nature limits me. Opposing my nature thwarts me, does not fulfill me. And I say, but note, this analysis requires an authentic analysis of my nature. Okay, let's pause there a second. So, jumping over the library building. Am I free to do that? Well, it's kind of a silly question, yeah, to say am I free, that I'm not capable of it. My, my nature, it's just not in my nature to jump over a building that big. Um, the nominalist modern view of nature, anything that gets in my way is unfair. I want to do it. Why can't I do it? It's, it's, it's somebody's fault that I can't do it. Um, I've got to blame somebody. Rather than just saying, well, no, it's okay I can't jump over the library building. Um, the type of being I am, look to what I am, find fulfillment according to what I am. That's what true freedom looks like. change your reality, uh, in your reality, you could jump over the apartment building, right? And this is where people use a, a phrase, uh, choose your reality, which therefore isn't reality anymore. We've ignored, we've just blown away the word reality, yeah? Choose your reality, it's not reality. I've chosen my imaginary world, I'm going to live in that. I've put my... Um, goggles on or whatever and, and I, in the virtual reality simulation I'm living in it's not reality so, I was kind of making fun but yeah I know you are <laughs> how do you like is there any sensible way to go about talking to someone that lives in that type of way like how you could bring them into reality the truth, into actual reality 
I think with everyone there's something that they realize they don't choose, that just is. Um, and with different people you've got to find what is that the case. Um, I can remember with a very secular old school friend of mine at one stage having a discussion um, and we were discussing um, copyrighted music and, and stealing copyrighted music and whatever uh, and the morality of it and he was saying well if no one gets hurt and if nobody finds out um, you know judge it by the consequences he says the consequences of that there's no bad consequences and you know he was trying to argue morality with with a priest which you know you could have thought he would anyway um, so I said well but with your wife if you commit adultery and she doesn't find out if you commit adultery and there are no bad consequences does that make it okay and he for him that was an instant example of no I realize they're actually there's something beyond consequences. And I think for everybody, there's something that they realize isn't just about consequences. And it's trying to find with different people an example that resonates with them. And then saying, actually, your whole criteria of basing everything on consequences isn't, just doesn't work. There's more than just consequences. Let me come back to my notes on the page here. So I had a section that had the limits of freedom. Next little section that modern views of freedom. See, modern views of freedom see freedom as an end in itself. See freedom as prior to human nature, not flowing from human nature. For example, I'm free to choose what kind of being I am. I'm free to choose to be a woman or free to choose to be a man but it's my choice that makes me one or the other. And I say nominalism is the root of the contemporary notions of freedom. Um, now the last thing on that page, I quote Veritatis Splendor, John Paul II. He uses this distinction between freedom for excellence or freedom from the law. So there's a modern notion of freedom is about casting off constraints, casting off what holds me back. I just want to do my own thing, whatever my thing is, and freedom means casting off whatever's stopping that. John Paul II is saying real freedom is aiming somewhere. And yes, it wants to cast off what's stopping you getting there, but freedom has a goal. Freedom is for excellence. And that's a very different vision of what freedom is all about. So to leave somebody free to destroy themselves is not an authentic freedom. Freedom has a goal. Your nature, what you are, Every nature has an end. You are seeking after this thing, happiness, 
true happiness, which is beatitude, which even before you knew it was actually God. That striving, you're seeking the good, particular goods. What do we mean? We mean things that are desirable, that are attractive. And you are able to do that the way a rational being does because you are rational. And freedom is the way a rational being engages with reality. That your intellect can see different possibilities in what it focuses on and therefore is able to choose between those different possibilities. Whereas a non-rational being has what St. Thomas would call sense knowledge of things. You know, it knows that that is an apple or it, it knows an apple and it knows an orange, but it doesn't know the orange in itself to understand it. I know that an orange has vitamins and that the apple has more fiber and I know those things in a way the dog doesn't. And therefore I can choose with a freedom that a rational being has. So freedom flows out of your being a rational being, but the bigger picture there, freedom has a goal. You have a goal, even before you choose whether or not you want to have a goal. You're just made seeking happiness. First part of this lecture, sin, we were noticing how that goes wrong that you're still seeking happiness in what appears good, but it isn't a real good. Or you're seeking it in real goods, but they're somehow out of measure, out of context, somehow inordinate. And because you are rational, because you are capable of choosing rightly, you are therefore duty bound to choose rightly. And when you are negligent, you don't do that degree of due diligence, thinking properly, then you're blameworthy for your wrong choices. And that's what we call sin. I've done a lot today. I've thrown out some big concepts here big foundational philosophical backgrounds. But when the, sin, when the Catechism is talking about sin, and it's talking about freedom, it's articulating things that are different from the way you, the modern world has trained you to think. Questions? somehow managed to be skewed so far that they 
Well, the car can be white and you can say it's black. That doesn't mean it is black. And you can say, well, black and white are just social constructs. playing games. Yeah. I think I think part of what we're witnessing is that it's possible to just completely confuse yourself to a certain extent with these things. And things that children grow up and it's really obvious to them that the boys and the girls are different. Um, you can be educated to think things that are just very different from reality. And so the beauty of what you're looking at in your ethics course with Aristotle is like a good scientist, Aristotle is coming back again and again and again to observation, reality. What do we see? What do people say about these things we see? That's how we know stuff. Yeah, so it is true that gender roles are in part a social construct. This in every culture, the husband-wife dynamic plays out slightly differently. But to leap from that to be saying, well, in general, male-female is a social construct, that's just distorting a truth, not seeing it. Thus, beyond this course, when you do my sexual morality course in the Theology 3, if you do it here, um, we'll cover it then. Um, okay, let's close in prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. The Lord be with you, and my God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.